Al Jazeera Podcasts. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. These are some of the statements that Israeli officials have made about Gaza over the last three months. We're enacting a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We're fighting against human animals, and we will act accordingly. Statements like these have made it into South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, the United Nations' top court in The Hague. The accusation? Genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. South Africa has recognized the ongoing Nakba of the Palestinian people through Israel's colonization since 1948. The two-day hearing began Thursday, continuing into Friday. The application places Israel's genocidal acts and omissions within the broader context of Israel's 75-year apartheid, 56-year occupation, and 16-year siege imposed on the Gaza Strip. But even if the ICJ rules a genocide is happening, can they do anything to stop it? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. South Africa's genocide case against Israel is underway. Please be seated. The case specifically alleges that Israel is violating the 1948 Genocide Convention, which both countries are party to. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with the full knowledge of how many civilian lives each bomb will take. The International Court of Justice is part of the United Nations, and that's where Al Jazeera's diplomatic editor, James Bays, is based. But the court itself is in The Hague, in the Netherlands. It's the fifth main organ of the UN and the only one that's not based in New York. Nevertheless, James has been watching it all closely, as have top UN officials, he says. The diplomats will have watched very, very closely what has happened uh, in The Hague. Very compelling argument from the South African lawyers. And clearly, they will care about this at the UN because it could have very important effects here at the United Nations. The International Court of Justice is... That was James live on Al Jazeera as the first day wrapped up. But he was able to catch up with us too to tell us more about the evidence that's in South Africa's 84-page application document. It's a compelling summary of what we've seen over the last three months. Israel deployed 6,000 bombs per week. At least 200 times it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. 
Now, a lot of the evidence they've actually used in the South African dossier, which then was relayed to the court orally uh, in, again, a very compelling argument, has actually come from the UN itself, from senior UN officials have been repeatedly quoted with very, very damning evidence about the situation on the ground, uh, a situation that South Africa doesn't at this point have to prove is genocide. It has to prove that there are the conditions that could create genocide, and that is what it is trying to prove in this particular hearing. Fifteen United Nations Special Rapporteurs and 21 members of the United Nations Working Groups have warned that what is happening in Gaza reflects a genocide in the making and an overt intent to destroy the Palestinian people under occupation. Israel has a genocidal intent against the Palestinians in Gaza. Though the evidence may be damning, James says Israel is also doing everything it can to win in the court of public opinion. Clearly, Israel has decided to use all its resources to try and persuade people around the world of their position and the fact that there is not genocidal acts taking place in Gaza. Here's Israel's UN ambassador, Gilad Erdan. How can it be, remember it, that the Convention on the Prevention of Genocide adopted following the Holocaust, the genocide of the Jewish people, is now being weaponized against the Jewish state. They've been going to countries around the world, to their friends around the world, to other countries around the world, trying to lobby people. It's worth remembering that the International Court of Justice is an international legal body, but the judges, the individual judges, are nominated by individual countries and there's an election each year. So there is a political aspect to this. And so I think they're hoping that they will be able to persuade some of the countries uh, to disregard this genocide action and hoping that the judges in The Hague will decide uh, not to support the South African case that's being put forward at this time. Israel is expected to emphasize what happened October 7th. But of course, if you look at international law and speak to international lawyers, they'll tell you something very clear. Even if there were crimes on October the 7th, that doesn't excuse other crimes. If you have acts which were abhorrent acts, that doesn't allow you to carry out abhorrent acts in response. And it is interesting that just hours before South Africa made its case in The Hague, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, put out videos only in English, not in Hebrew, saying that Israel was not trying to in any way attack the people of Gaza and was only aiming at the leaders of Hamas. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. Our goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas terrorists and free our hostages. But South Africa's legal argument pushed back against statements Israeli officials have been making. What state would admit to a genocidal intent? Yet, the distinctive feature of this case has not been the silence as such, but the reiteration and repetition of genocidal speech throughout every sphere of state in Israel. 
A final determination on this case could take years, but South Africa has also asked the court for an emergency interim measure to stop Israel's war on Gaza. That could come within weeks. Any order by the ICJ would be legally binding, but the court also has no way of enforcing any of its judgments. Well, the International Court of Justice has ordered Russia to suspend its military operations in Ukraine. Just last year, Russia ignored an ICJ order to stop its military operations in Ukraine. But Putin has shown no sign of stopping the assault, and Russia... Many skeptics believe Israel would do the same, even if convicted of genocide. But James says those supporting the case still believe it has value. I think South Africa, and for that matter, Palestine, believe this is a very, very important case. It's important to get this on the international legal record, number one. Remember, this is the International Court of Justice. There's also the International Criminal Court, which is also looking at the evidence in this case and has actually been examining the file of Israel and Palestine since 2021. If the court does decide to issue what are called provisional measures and decides that there are the conditions that could create a genocide and it decides to issue those measures to order uh, a cessation of hostilities, order Israel to stop its bombardment of Gaza, yes, the International Court of Justice doesn't have troops, it doesn't have peacekeepers, it doesn't have any military way to enforce this. But I think it changes things here where I am at UN headquarters in New York, because you'll remember there have been repeated efforts to get a ceasefire at the UN Security Council, and those efforts have been blocked by just one country, the United States, which on three occasions has used its veto power as a permanent member to block any resolution that would have led to an order for Israel to cease its military action. While insisting they were working to get aid into Gaza, the United States, standing alone, blocked the Security Council from passing a resolution that would do just that. And James says so much of this comes down to the U.S., We could have a scenario where the International Court of Justice has ruled the highest court in the world, and then someone could bring another Security Council motion uh, recalling what the International Court of Justice has said. The question then is, would President Biden be prepared to get his country to veto yet again given that it would be in defiance of the world's highest court. Remember, this is a president who, for much of his term in office, has been saying that the US is a guardian of the international rules-based order. It'll be a very difficult position that President Biden is put in. He's already had a great deal of condemnation uh, for his country's three vetoes over the last three months. After the break why South Africa is taking the lead in this case. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, science fiction writer Christopher Brown imagines a future where animals have the same rights as humans. If corporations have rights, why can't trees? If a corporation can be a legal person, why can't an elephant? An indigenous lawyer, Jack Fiander, takes the city of Seattle into tribal court on behalf of salmon for destroying their habitat with a dam. If it ultimately established that salmon have rights that can be violated just like people do, 
That would be pretty earth-shaking. The Rights of Nature, on Necessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One hundred and fifty-three nations are party to the United Nations Genocide Convention. So why did South Africa take the lead, presenting the case to the ICJ? We spoke to Tabi Malusi, a South African lawyer and legal analyst, to find out. South Africa, in its pleaded case, argues that as a signatory to the Genocide Convention, it has an obligation to prevent genocide whatever it happens. And this is not... A, an obligation that is unique to South Africa. It's, it's an obligation that exists for all state parties that are signatories to the Genocide Convention. Um, so that is the formal reason. But, you know, a lot of international human rights organizations have dubbed um, Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, this includes Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch. And so in that sense, that resonates quite strongly and closely to South Africa because the existing ANC government which currently rules South Africa, is the same government that fought against apartheid. The African National Congress became a thorn in the side of the white oppressive government. So, you know, in that sense, you can see why South Africa feels compelled to bring this case on behalf of the people of Palestine. And Tommy says that resonance hits deeply across generations. South Africans, you know, our, our freedom only came in 1994. I am 32 years old. So I was four years old when we gained our independence. My parents grew up during apartheid South Africa. My friends' parents grew up during apartheid South Africa. And so the legacy of apartheid is very much alive in South Africa. Wealth is still racially distributed. Uh, property, uh, economical power, political power. Most South Africans feel really strongly about what is happening in Israel-Palestine, and they feel that we were there not so long ago. And so when South Africa takes a stance to defend Palestine and bring a case against Israel that there are genocidal acts that are being committed, South Africans feel very strongly about that. They, for the longest time, have been one of the biggest supporters of Palestine. And the general sentiment here at home is that the government is doing the right thing. The genocide that is happening in Palestine is totally uh, not acceptable because it's against the humankind, it's against the human rights. Israel must pack and go. That is the Palestinian land. They must leave the Palestinians alone. Palestinians are very peaceful people. And Tommy believes black South Africans' support for Palestine is also about affecting change like it was during the struggle against apartheid. We were in the same position. Uh, when people did the same thing for us, it led to our liberation, and we hoped that you know, similar acts could lead to the liberation of the Palestinian people. So like beyond the legal considerations, there's a very strong political and, and just strong sentiment from South Africans that you know, what is happening in Palestine is wrong, and that a resolution needs to be found uh, sooner rather than later. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra, Sari Al-Khalili, and Faranisa Kampana, with David Enders, Sonia Bagat, Chloe Kaylee, Amy Walters, 
Nagin Oliayi, Zaina Bader, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lin, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Anade Satuma. We'll be back.